It's great to be with you again today. We're halfway through a series that we're doing in church called Dangerous Faith. We're looking at stories from the book of Acts. We're looking at stories from the persecuted church. We're hearing stories and we're going to hear some more today. And as one of the leaders of the church, I kind of wanted to throw out a warning, maybe a challenge. That these people never thought of themselves as special. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Joe mentioned this last week. You know, these are ordinary people. And so let's not put them on a pedestal. They were just ordinary people who said yes to God and kept saying yes to God. You see, when we see these people as exceptions, it kind of creates a chasm. It's kind of them and us. You know, they were just modeling what normal Christian life should look like. I love to read kind of biographies and biographies. And uh, I have this series behind me from YOM that I read to the children, predominantly people that have gone overseas. But I want them to understand that this is what normal looks like, what following Jesus looks like. And so as we listen to a video in a minute, as I read a passage, let's just ask God to speak to us. And let us not just say, well, that was interesting, that was challenging, that was a great story. Let's be saying, God, what are you speaking to me this morning? What does my next yes look like? So carrying on, we're going to read from Acts chapter 9. Starting at verse 1, going all the way through to verse 25. It's headed up as Saul's conversion in my Bible. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias, Answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. As soon as at once began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem amongst all those who called in his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And now I'm going to hand over to Ronald from the open doors as he just shares it in this video. Imagine this scene. It's pitch black, dead of night. A man is levered out of a window into a four foot wide basket. It's maybe as high as 60 feet off the ground. It would be fatal if he fell. And the cane woolen basket creaks under the strain of his weight. It crashes into vines and bushes growing on the wall on the way down. Maybe it's making too much noise, thinks the man sitting in the basket. Am I gonna get through this alive? Is this my last night? Will my pursuers hear? Are they waiting for me at the bottom? After an eternity, through the darkness, the basket touches the ground and out leaps a balding man in his thirties. Freedom? Not really. He just scuttles away into the dark desert night. This is the Apostle Paul. This is going to be one of the most powerful men in history. And look at him, scuttling away into the night. The Apostle Paul never expected to make an exit like this in his life. He was the son of a wealthy merchant from a big city, brilliant at studies, connected at the highest levels of Jewish society. A man of position and, and power. He had come to this city of Damascus with an ambassadorial status. He had a whole retinue of police and servants at his command. And in his bag, he carried letters of diplomatic immunity to conduct religious cleansing. And yet, here he is, knuckles white as he grips the sides of the basket. He's no longer an ambassador, he's a fugitive. And see him scampering away into the night with nothing but his clothes. Oh, and a gospel recently discovered because Jesus had appeared to him in this city and transformed his life. Why is Paul in the basket at all? People are after him. He's on the run. And you can imagine him sitting in this basket saying, this God, he's dangerous to know. One moment I was heading for a glittering career as a rabbi, but now after encountering him, I'm on the run for my life. 
And the people that had educated Paul and commissioned him to persecute Christians have now turned on him because he's changed sides. There is a sense in which every Christian has changed sides. And that's where the trouble comes from. Because when we turn to Christ, we are pursued by a whole host of forces that didn't take much interest in us before. And the world in which we live is no longer a playground, it's a battleground. Who's after Paul? Well, the Jewish leaders in Damascus. They're very annoyed because he's come to the synagogues, he's preached the gospel, and they weren't able to answer him. And they're jealous and they're mad. And so they're after him. They're going to silence him. It doesn't help, of course, that he's got a bit of a, bit of a history. This is the city he was supposed to come to and get rid of the Christians. And here he is speaking on behalf of the Christians. How galling for them. And there's another group that's after him too, because when Paul's talking about this incident later uh, to the Corinthians, he says that actually guards were waiting for him outside the city. The guards of the king of Arabia, King Aretas. And this is probably because, he tells us in Galatians, that early on he went to Damascus, encountered Christ, and then he left Damascus and went into Arabia for three years. And then he came back to Damascus. So something happened in Arabia to annoy the king and pursue Paul. Probably Paul was preaching. He usually was. And everywhere he preached, he got into trouble. So it seems that King Aretas has his guards outside the city because King Aretas's writ did not run into Damascus. Paul is getting it from both angles. Inside the city, the religious leaders are after his neck. Outside the city, the guards from a king are waiting to arrest him. All because he has an incendiary gospel. And so Paul learns early on that the life of faith involves being pursued and he was to be on the run for the rest of his life. This God is dangerous to know. And that's the meaning of the word persecution. It just means to be pursued, it's a verb. So we all sit in the basket with Paul. Something or someone is always after us, not because of who we are, but because of Christ in us. The great New Testament scholar, William Barclay, once said that a New Testament Christian has three characteristics. One, they were absurdly happy. Two, they were filled with an irrational love for their enemies. Three, they were always in trouble. Always in trouble, that's the default setting for any Christian. And Paul is to write later in his ministry that he expects every Christian to experience this pursuit. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy, he writes that. So, who's after you? Who's after me? If we sit in the basket with Paul, we have to ask, if Christ has enemies, then so must I. Sometimes the battle comes to us, but sometimes we have to take the battle to the enemy. Paul wasn't having to flee because he was a Christian. Paul was fleeing because he was a witnessing Christian. And we need to remember this. Jesus said, love your enemies. But he didn't say, 
don't make any. When you sit in the basket with Paul, you're always gripping the sides and saying, who's after me? Who's after me? Somebody should be. We all should be in that basket at some point. And if someone isn't, we need to gently ask ourselves, why not? There was a preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who once said, the devil doesn't waste his time flogging a dead horse. And the persecuted of the world will testify that when you experience that pursuit, strangely, you will count it as your greatest honor. Maybe it's time to get back into the basket with Paul and ask, who's after me? Wow, what a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. What a transformation in the life of Saul as he became poor. What a video. I mean, it's packed with so many quotable lines. And it'd be very easy for me and for each one of us just to rush on. But let us pause. You're probably aware that as a follower of Jesus, there are a lot of practices that one can do that can help you become more like him. There's things like prayer and fasting and reading the Bible. There's also one called slowing down. So I just want us to begin just to slow down. I know that many of you are in life groups. And if you're not, I'd encourage you to join one because in life groups, we are also going for this series. And it's an awesome little opportunity to pause, to slow down, to marinate in the truths of what we're reading in the Bible, what we're watching in the videos and hopefully for the talks as well, to ponder. So let's do that with some of the things that Ronald shared. I'm gonna share some of these and some of them I might comment on, but let us ponder, let's slow down. So he said, life is no longer a playground, but a battleground. Wow. He said about Paul that he had an incendiary gospel. And so do we. Joe and a load of you shared last week, and if you've been looking at our Facebook feeds over this week, different people from Winchester Vineyard have been talking about what the good news, what the gospel means to them, looks like for them, what this incendiary gospel looks like. Wow. Let's never forget what the gospel is. What's the good news we have? It's incendiary. And there's a lot of dry wood around us. Ronald then said, a life of faith involves being persecuted. This God is dangerous to know. Is the God we follow dangerous to know? Then he quotes 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. I notice the words all and will. That seems quite decisive. Wow. Ronald then had this great phrase, I love it. Jesus said, love your enemies. But he did not say that. Did not say to not make any. Wow. Then he had this phrase, he came back to a couple of times where he said, who is after you? Somebody should be after you. If not, why not? That's a challenging question. One to discuss over a meal, to discuss in life group. It's not the first time actually I've heard that question because from my experience of working amongst Muslims and overseas, and I think I mentioned a few weeks ago this book, The Insanity of God by Nick Rickpen. And this guy, he went around the world to places like China and the four, former Russian republics, countries behind the Iron Curtain, to speak to people that had spent 15, 20 years in jail. And he wanted to interview, he wanted to write down the stories. And so many of them said, why do you want our stories? Why do the people in the West want to hear their stories? Surely they have their own stories. They don't need ours. And they quoted that very verse we looked at earlier. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. All who live a godly life will be persecuted. So who is after you? Somebody should be after you. If not, why not? Wow. I haven't even started speaking and I'm kind of challenged by those quotes. I felt it was a good place to pray. I felt like I was on holy ground in some ways. Maybe that's just me. Before I'm going to move on and just do a few reflections. Ah, oh, God, that's, that verse in itself, it's challenging. Those questions, they're challenging. And I just pray that through all that we hear today, Speak to us, God. Lord, I pray that we'll come with ears, Lord. I don't want to just acknowledge something, Lord, but want to respond. God, I thank you that you call us into good things, but you call us into challenging things. And I pray as you speak these things, just release more of your Holy Spirit, because it's your Holy Spirit that releases courage and boldness and faith and expectation, God. It's your Holy Spirit that reminds us of who we are and who you are. Amen. Amen. Well, in that passage, there's actually two main characters, Saul and Ananias. Ronald actually only just really focuses in on Paul. But I'm going to kind of look at both of them and draw some, I think, some of the characteristics and ways of doing life that you see in both their lives. Firstly, going back to one I mentioned already, they were ordinary people, but their lives got turned upside down as they said yes to God. You know, as Ronald said so beautifully, what a contrast from when Saul kind of entered the city, as in coming to the city, he kind of came with a pomp, he came with letters from leaders, from the Sanhedrin, he had a laid out career from what we understand he was part of the Sanhedrin 
this kind of religious group of uh, leaders in Jerusalem. And to be part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. And so you have that at the beginning. Then you have this passage, and at the end, he's going down in a basket over a wall. He probably didn't have any idea what his plans were. His plans were in tatters. People that were, had been his friends maybe a week or two before now wanted him killed. Former enemies were now part of his fellowship as followers of Jesus, but they were kind of nervous about him as well. Talk about your life turning upside down. But the reason I say this is ordinary, or maybe not extraordinary, because it's such a familiar story. I hear this story again and again as I go and work and share Jesus amongst Muslims. Some of our global partners work amongst Muslims, and as I spoke to them, they again could have told story after story after story of Muslims who have chosen to follow Jesus, and because of that, they've lost their wives, they've lost their families, they've lost their careers. Yes, yeah, sometimes persecution looks like the stories that we read where people are put in jail and tortured. But for a lot of people, particularly I deal with, it's being ostracized. It's losing your children. Losing your career. Losing your university place. And it's not just those stories there. You know, I mentioned these books earlier on here. You know, and I could choose a whole load of them. Let's just grab something from the top. Grab these. Uh, Rachel Saint. Uh, she was a university student when we were husband. Within a year or two, he was dead, showing Jesus in Ecuador, an ordinary student. Uh, Mil Milford Cable, um, she was kind of like a, like a maid, like the lowest maid in a Victorian house, and God called her to go to China, go to the Gobi Desert, actually the first lady to cross the Gobi Desert. Okay, there's a more well-known one. If you ever watched the film Chariots of Fire, one of my favourite film. Actually, it was the first film I saw as a child. Eric Little. Not only was he a gold medalist at the Paris Olympics, I think 1924 if I remember, but he also played rugby for Scotland. And then God called him away. Uh, we had the lowest kind of Maid servant, and then we have somebody um, called C.T. Stood. He played cricket for England. He was part of the original Ashes tour, and he gave up everything just to go and follow Jesus. These were all, all these I could go through. I've got about 30 of them here, and I've got a whole load of other books. This is just the YWAM series. Ordinary people that said yes to God and kept saying yes. So firstly, Saul and Ananias, these people, they're ordinary. But secondly, though they were ordinary, they had a different mindset. This kind of goes back to the, the talk I did a couple of weeks ago when Ronald challenged us about having a different mindset. And in particular, you see this in the life of Paul and you see this in his writings. Paul had a mindset that, to quote from a verse in the Bible, counted all things are lost compared to the surpassing greatness and knowing Christ Jesus. To give the full quote from Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11. Indeed I, this is Paul writing, count everything 
has lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or as he also said in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had that mindset of counting all things a loss. If that involved saying yes to what God was saying to him and calling him into. You see this awesome story of Ananias, which I will emphasize a little bit more in a minute. But I see this story again all over the place. I remember last year, um, I go, some of you won't know, but I oversee a team that's sharing Jesus amongst Muslims in kind of East Ethiopia and into the Horn of Africa. And so we train people and we send them out, like in the Bible, two by two to share Jesus, raise the dead, do signs and wonders, proclaim the good news. And we had a guy from a Muslim background who was following Jesus. And we sent him out and he went back to his home village. It's quite a large village. And he was sharing Jesus. And eventually it was being so successful that the, some of the leaders there got together and said, right, we've got to get rid of him. And so he was ambushed, I think by six or seven people outside the village. And they killed him. They actually cut off three of his fingers just to make sure he was dead. And they buried him. Well, three days later, he was raised from the dead. Nobody actually prayed for him. We didn't know about this till later. And I don't know what you would have done, but this is what he did. He went back into that village. Now, in these three days while he'd been buried, the moss in the village had been proclaiming the man who's been causing us all these problems He's dead. They were kind of declaring it as a fact. They were also declaring it as a kind of like a threat. So when this guy turns up again, wow. And he begins to proclaim the good news. It caused many people, including four of the people who had killed him, to begin to follow Jesus. He had a different mindset. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Or as Jim Elliot, a famous follower of Jesus who was killed in 1956, says, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So they were ordinary. They had a different mindset. But they kept saying yes. And you see this in the story of Ananias. I think sometimes we forget the story of Ananias because we, we know the end of the story, but imagine yourself at the beginning that you're this person, Ananias. One day you have your vision. It might have been a fleeting, just a, a vision, like a thought going through his head to go to Straight Street and to share Jesus, this guy called Saul. And again, because we know the end of the story, we, we, I think sometimes we, we lose the importance, the significance of it. Imagine Saul or somebody like Bin Laden 
or the leader of ISIS, because that's literally what he was doing. This was so was somebody who despised Christians. They were the infidel, to use that Muslim language. Imagine if God said that to you this morning, and maybe you're thinking, what shall I do? Maybe you think, shall I tell my life group leader? I don't know if you're a life group leader. And somebody said to you, hey, I feel like God's calling me and to go and share with the leader of the Taliban in Afghanistan or the leader of ISIS. I think he's somewhere still in uh, Syria. Or go to Libya. Um, I don't know if somebody said that to me or if they came to Nigel and Joe, what we'd say as a, as a leadership team. I don't know if Ananias even told his, his family, his, his wife. You know, maybe he slipped out and his wife said, what are you up to? Ah, I'm going for a walk. And I'm sure she would have tried to talk him out of it. I don't know if he walked up Straight Street. I wonder how many times he walked up and down Straight Street. I suspect he didn't just walk up to it and just go, knock, knock. He probably walked up to it and maybe, and maybe it's just because this is me and I, I see myself. I would have probably walked past him thinking, well, if the moon turns red and um, a bird suddenly starts singing... Then I'll knock on that door. Then I know it's you. I mean, that's me being really honest. And I suspect that Ananias being ordering, he had some of these thoughts going through his mind. Maybe he walked up and walked back. Maybe he took a deep breath eventually and knocked on that door, thinking, I hope he's not in. But we know that Saul encountered God. And the rest of the history of the early church, the rest of our history was changed because of Ananias, because he said, Yes. Are we willing to say yes? What does yes, saying yes to God, look like for us? Just a couple more thoughts as we come to end. This idea of saying yes. To state the obvious, saying yes doesn't mean it will be easy. Is it easy to say yes to easy things? But the cost comes when we say yes to hard things. Particularly when we don't know the result or the outcome of that yes. And having a lifestyle, secondly, having a lifestyle saying yes to God will lead you into stepping into the calling and purposes of God. My friend, uh, Carl Medeiros, who I used to work with him in Lebanon, he has a book called Adventures in Saying Yes. And as we say yes, we will step into a lifestyle that will lead us into calling and purposes. Just to share from my own personal experience, I remember many years ago when I was single. So you've got to go back a few years. And I was asked if I'd run a life group. And I said yes. A few life groups later, because I love planting life groups out, I was leading a vineyard church. Which for many people, they think is a pinnacle of Christian calling. It's not. And then I was asked if I'd go on a short-term trip with a pastor to Lebanon. And I said, yes. Then God asked Katie and I if we would give up being senior pastors and a well-paid career that I had at the University of Birmingham to go overseas and work with Muslims. And we said, yeah. And for some people, being an overseas worker is, this is the pinnacle. It's not. Being who you are and what God calls you to be, that's the pinnacle of anybody's life. And then God said, leave it behind because I've got something larger for you. And we said, yes. A set of adventures that happened by saying yes. And they're not perfect. I'm, there's many times God, I felt God prompted me to say yes to certain things, to speak to certain people, to do certain things. And I haven't. But yes is 
cause things to happen. If I remember correctly, my apologies to Nigel and Joe if I'm wrong, but many years ago they were asked if they would just get involved in kids' work. And they said yes. And after a few more yeses, now they're here leading Winchester Vineyard. So to look at the stories of these people, they were ordinary. And I really want to stress that. But they had a different mindset. Hopefully as we've been doing this series, our mindset, our way of perception, a way of looking at life, a way of looking at ourselves, a way of looking at our possessions, a way of looking at our careers, our calling, what our life looks like if we're retired, is beginning to change. Thirdly, though they were ordinary, they kept saying yes to God, trusting God who caused them, yet not always knowing what that was going to look like. So to finish off, what is God saying to you? What does saying yes to him mean? It might literally mean something like crossing the neighbour, reconnecting with a, a family friend or a family member. Maybe it's saying yes when you get asked to get involved in compassion ministry, leading a life group. Maybe it means giving up your career or changing location. But it's good just to take time and to ponder these things and to lay everything down, to consider everything a loss, the surpassing greatness of God. So I'm just going to pray. And we're going to put those questions up and take time. These are questions not to be rushed into, but to slow down and ponder. God, I thank you that you have a purpose and calling on our lives. And that looks so different to different ones of us, God. But God, I pray you'll show us what our next yes looks like. If there are things, Lord, that we have to consider a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of following you. And Lord, I pray you give us courage. Give us the courage, Lord Ananias. Give us the courage that comes from the Holy Spirit. Because, Lord, I know so often I've said no. I might not have verbalised it so clearly, but my actions have reflected that. I've stepped back. I've kept my mouth shut. I haven't given when I could have given. Lord, help me be somebody that says yes more often and quicker to every prompting from you. May we be a church that is also like that. Amen.